But for the last several weeks, we've been uh, in our sermon series, Upside Down Kingdom. We've been following uh, Jesus' teachings about the kingdom of God and how he defines it in such a way that we realize um, that the kingdoms of this world are really the ones that are upside down. And what Jesus is doing is revealing a kingdom uh, that is how God wants it to be. Um, creating a, a, a kingdom that brings healing and redemption and, and life to people that need it. Um, and as we start this morning, we're going to go way back, and I'm going to mention a few scriptures this morning. You don't need to turn there. We're just going to pass through them really quickly. But 3,000 years ago, um, in the book of First Samuel, chapter 8, we're told of Israel wanting a king. They looked around and said, everybody else has kings. It seems to be working out pretty well for them. We feel kind of vulnerable. We don't have one. And so they demanded, God, give us a king. That didn't go as Israel had hoped it would. Many of you know the stories uh, in the Old Testament, uh, the way that kings uh, ruled Israel. It just didn't work out the way that they'd hoped. And In fact, the most celebrated king, the most honored king in all of Israel is King David. And even he had moments where he failed pretty miserably where his kingdom, his rule, was shaped by sin and a lack of faith to God. Um, And that was the high point. David's the one that they all look back to and say, if we could just get a king like him. Um, His his son Solomon uh, kind of helped things get worse from there. (laughs) We think of Solomon, we we hear the stories, oh, he's the wisest king, the wisest person. But there were some things that he did terribly wrong. Uh, Solomon wanted to build a temple for God, but he wanted to build a palace for himself. Of course, his palace was bigger than the temple. That's a whole other story. Um, But in order to accomplish these huge building projects, to build the temple for God that properly honored God and, and this palace for himself and all the other ambitious things he wanted in the kingdom, he did some things. He made some executive decisions as king. He could, but he decided, one of the decisions he, he decided to do was he took his own people and forced them into labor. Another word for that is making them slaves. He didn't have enough people volunteering, signing up to build this. He couldn't afford to do it, so he enslaved his own people to work on the temple and his palace. And then he made deals with foreign countries around him. Uh, to fund this building project, he would sell weapons and horses and chariots and those types of things. He was a, a weapons dealer uh, to fund the building projects. And these deals, these relationships compromised his fidelity, his faithfulness to God. And so for a people, the people of God, the Israelites, their primary identity had been the exodus We know the Exodus story, right? God freed them from slavery under the oppressive rule of an oppressive king called Pharaoh in Egypt. Their identity was born. They held onto that. They would have festivals, and their identity was people that had been slaves once, but slaves no more. They had been freed. And so having a king that was taking people whose identity was God has given us freedom from slavery. And, and having a king that says, no, we're going we're gonna to reinstitute slavery. We're going to see King Solomon acting more like a pharaoh than what we'd like. This has become worst-case scenario for these people. And so if you look through the history of the people of Israel in the Old Testament, you can pick any chapter, any book. 
and just read through it, you'll see that this is the history that the people of God are wrestling with in the Old Testament. It's not individuals figuring out how to get to heaven when they die. That's not the problem of the Old Testament. That's not what they're trying to, to figure out. Like how, do, well, how do we get to heaven when we die? That's not, and it's not even so much dealing with their own individual sins. There's, of course, that's dealt with in places. But the primary focus, the lens of the Old Testament scriptures are shaped around the idea of a righteous king who's going to lead us. God is going to anoint a new king that is going to lead us in righteousness. And we will be the people that God wants us to be. That we have this king that will lead us towards life instead of death. That will lead us towards peace instead of conflict. That will lead us as a shepherd leads a flock. Now there's prophets in the Old Testament too, right? And these prophets critique the king, right? They would write. They would show up and accuse them of things. They would announce the sins of the king. They would point a way back to God. They would invite the people to be faithful to God, not the king. Ultimately, these prophets announced the hope that God would anoint a new king, the one that God wants in place, and that this new king would lead the people in the ways of God and lead them in proper worship. Again, uh, mentioning another scripture, you don't have to turn there, but Deuteronomy chapter 17 is a prescription of what a godly king should look like. So there's a kind of a job description of what a king should do. And a few of the things on that job description say this. It says, he, he must be from among your fellow Israelites. He's one of your people. <coughs> not some elite person from another country being installed over us. Not some, something like that. But it, it, it's uh, somebody that comes from your fellow Israelites. The king also must also not acquire a great number of horses or go to Egypt to buy more horses. Now this might sound weird. It, it, God didn't hate horses, that wasn't the problem, keep the horses out of Israel. Horses were basically the vehicles of war. So he's saying, don't get a lot of tanks. Don't get a lot of uh, bombers. And don't go to Egypt and buy more, right? So that's what he's saying. It's not that he doesn't like horses. He's saying, don't accumulate a huge army. And then it says, uh, another thing in Deuteronomy 17 says, he must not take many wives, Again, this is not about, you know, having peace in the household and having conflict between a bunch of spouses or something like that. The, this is a, uh, an invitation to avoid making deals with other countries. So a king in another country would want to make a trade, an economic deal, or they want to broker peace, a treaty of something, and they would marry, They'd give their daughters and whatever in marriage. And that was how peace deals were made. That's how... Uh, weapon sales were made. That's how economic uh, systems were set up. And so these foreign wives would bring with them their foreign gods and shape the king's heart in a particular way. Another thing in the job description says that the king must not accumulate large amounts of silver and gold. Now this seems pretty foreign. If you're, if you're talking about kings and and kingdoms over the history of the world like this is like the no-brainer of course kings are going to get huge treasuries like this is the that's the whole point of having a king they're going to accumulate wealth for the for themselves and for the people that's how they get more power but deuteronomy 17 says a king shouldn't shouldn't have a lot amount of gold and silver 
And then a, a final line from the job description I want to highlight this morning. It says, he's to write for himself on a scroll a copy of this law taken from the Levitical priests. So he's supposed to have his own copy of the Torah with him. It is to be with him, Deuteronomy 17 says. That means near him, in proximity, a part of his daily living. And he's to read it all the days of his life, it says, so that this king would learn to revere the Lord his God and follow carefully all the words of this law and these decrees. And in the reading of the scripture, not to consider himself better than other Israelites. So this is the job description. And so when the prophets look at uh, the kings of Israel, when the prophets evaluated, when, when uh, you know, the pollsters did their um, popularity polls, approval ratings, to put it in modern political terms, they evaluated if the king was doing a good job or not a good job, not based on how big the army was, how many wars they've won, not how much money was in the bank account, But rather, they were using this criteria. Are you being faithful to God and God's kingdom? And when you, when you evaluate these kings based off that, sir, there are some that were better than others. There was a few that came along and said, let's get rid of the idols. And they did that for a while. But then they'd find some other way to be compromised. And So the, the history of the Old Testament is, is the history of Israel's kings failing to be faithful to what God has called them to be. And in fact, their, their history is interpreted through that lens. So um, Israel is conquered, right, by invading armies. Why does the scripture say those armies came in and invaded? It's because Israel wasn't being faithful to God. It wasn't because this other army had more power, more might, more horses and chariots and all those things. But it's because the people of Israel weren't being faithful to God. The king wasn't being faithful to God. When Israel is defeated and the people are taken from the promised land and forced to live in exile... They said, well, it's not because they're better than us or more powerful than us or their God is more powerful than our God. The, the answer was our kings aren't faithful. We're not living the way that God wants us to live. So their failure, the king's failure, is a cause for defeat. It's a cause for exile. And in fact, it's the cause for the destruction of the temple. And so on this Sunday known as Reign of Christ Sunday or Christ the King Sunday, we're going to look at a story where Jesus... Um, talks about how his kingdom meets those ancient expectations. He checks all the check boxes uh, of Deuteronomy 17. He hears the people's cries for a king that will lead them in faithful worship, a king that will treat them the way that God wants them to. So uh, today we're going to look at a story where he not only exceeds or meets those expectations, but he exceeds them and redefines them. Our scripture for this morning comes from the Gospel of John, chapter 18, uh, verses 33 through 37. Uh, It'll be on the screen, um, but also if you don't have a Bible and you want one, there should be some underneath the chairs there. Uh, If you don't have one, that's yours to take home um, if you need one. Um, But John, chapter 18, verses 33 through 37. Pilate then went back inside the palace summoned Jesus and asked him, Are you the king of the Jews? Is that your own idea, Jesus asked, or did others talk to you about me? Am I a Jew, Pilate replied? Your own people and chief priest handed you over to me. What is it you have done? 
Jesus said, my kingdom is not of this world. If it were, my servants would fight to prevent my arrest by the Jewish leaders. But now my kingdom is from another place. You are a king then, said Pilate. Jesus answered, you say that I am a king. In fact, the reason I was born and came into this world is to testify to the truth. Everyone on the side of the truth listens to me. Now pray with me, if you will. Father, we are, again, grateful for your word. We're grateful for the word that is preserved on pages, ink on paper, that gives us access, the ability to go and to read and to hear and to study, to gather together and to share in a common story or common teaching, to wrestle with the truth and understand what you want to say to us. We are grateful for that word. But this morning, especially, we are grateful for the, the word that came flesh and dwelt amongst us. The truth was revealed not only on words on pages, but in the life, death, and resurrection of Jesus. So we'd ask for that word to speak to our hearts and our minds today. May that word form us into the image of your Son. We thank you and love you. Amen. So as we dig a little bit deeper into our scripture this morning, I want to throw out a reminder that the word kingdom, when Jesus is talking about kingdom or the Bible is talking about kingdom, isn't referring to a place on a map. It's not saying this is a place that you can go. It's not saying that it's a a geographical location like, you know, the United Kingdom. Oh, that's over there or something like that. But kingdom at its root means the reign, the rule, the authority, the places that are under the authority of a particular king, the things that have been shaped by that king. And so just kind of that's the backdrop for this whole conversation between Pilate and Jesus. Now this story that we we just looked at is a little bit uh, out of context for us today. It's usually told as part of the Holy Week or part of the build-up to Easter, right? This is Jesus on his way to the cross And on the way to the cross, he has just this brief conversation with Pilate. Um, But today we read the story not as a a stopping point on the way to the cross, but we read it as an acknowledgement or a a celebration of the culmination of the church year um, with the announcement that Jesus is king. Jesus reigns and rules over all creation. That's what the church is gathering today and celebrating and announcing. Jesus has been given all authority in heaven and on earth. Jesus is Lord. And so for the past 51 weeks, starting in Advent last year, we have been following the church calendar. Uh, But we've also been following the lectionary. I'm not going to go into great detail about the lectionary, but um, it's a tool that helps pastors and churches um, understand the big story of what God is doing. In creation, the goal is not to read or preach the whole Bible. It's not a reading plan, you know, 365 reading plan type of thing. It's not intended to teach us every verse in the Bible or something like that, although it does force us to look at difficult texts sometimes. Um, the goal is to teach the big story found in the Bible, this grand narrative of God. And each and every week, there are prescribed readings from the Old Testament, from the Psalms. New Testament gospel, 
And if your pastor doesn't cut out the worship team's part where they're going to read one, they would have read one today. Um, And it varies from time to time, week to week type of thing, special days throughout the year. Next week is the first week of Advent. Starts the new church year. After Advent is Christmas, after Christmas, Epiphany. Then we have Lent, Easter or Easter Tide. Then we have this long stretch called Ordinary Time or the season after Pentecost. And this is on a three-year cycle. There's what's called year A, year B, year C. And so while there's prescribed stuff every year that takes you through those particular seasons, it's not the same scripture every year. It's on a three-year cycle. But it begins with Advent, with expecting, with waiting, right? With this, this hopeful posture towards what God is going to do for us. So next week, we begin hoping, we begin waiting, we begin expecting, asking, what is God going to do in this world? And it it starts with expecting and it concludes with the reign of Christ or Christ the King Sunday, fulfillment of the promises of what was hoped for. So we, we, we start next week going, man, God's got to do something in this world. It's not quite right. And a, a year from today, we'll stand up together, we'll gather together and I'll stand up and say, Jesus is King. And we'll celebrate that that's God's answers to the problems of the world. We celebrate the fulfillment of the hope that Israel had for generations. The desired and needed, they, they desired and they needed this righteous king. This was the problem, was that they didn't have somebody that was going to lead them into righteousness. That, and Israel hoped and wanted, and this, they desired and needed this king. And in Jesus, Israel received that long-awaited king. So why the story about Jesus talking to Pilate? If today is about celebrating the kingship of Jesus, the lordship of Jesus, couldn't there be countless other scriptures we could have looked at that would have done a better job celebrating it? Because, in fact, Jesus never even acknowledges, says he is a king. Pilate says, you are a king, and he's like, that's what you say. Or he says, Pilate says, you are a king, he's like, who told you that? But he doesn't come out and say, you're right, I'm king, you got me. So why this, like, awkward conversation between the two of them? Well, if you're asking what is going on here, I mean, that's what I was asking this week. Because you see, Pilate asked Jesus, do you claim to be the king of the Jews? Jesus is like, who said I was? And then Pilate says, well, your own people, the chief priests brought you here. So obviously, you know, there's some sort of claim going on. But Jesus said in verse 36, and uh, we have this slide for that. Got you guys jumping today. I'm messing everything up. Um, Jesus said in verse 36, my kingdom is not of this world, right? So Pilate asked him, well, are you king or not? And he's like, well, my kingdom isn't of this world. If it were, my servants would fight to protect it, to prevent my arrest. They would fight the Jewish leaders. We would have gathered an army and fought, and we would have been in a battle. There would have been conflict, but we didn't because my kingdom is not from this place. It's from another place. My reign and rule, my authority doesn't come from worldly sources of authority. It comes from another place. And again, this conversation is a bit awkward. Jesus is trying to address a problem, though, and that's why this conversation is awkward. He didn't want us to get too far down the road without understanding some things first. The problem isn't 
and I've heard some people say this, that Jesus, if he said, yeah, I'm the king, like the conversation would have been over and that would have been the done deal and Jesus wasn't ready for that yet or something like that. It's not that he was avoiding acknowledging he's a king. It wasn't like he was trying to be work a loophole or something. Jesus wasn't timid. He wasn't afraid of announcing who he was. The problem uh, that Jesus was trying to work through was that if you said Jesus is king, Jesus is Lord, people would think they knew what that meant. If Jesus stood up and said, I am king, they would say, oh, like Pilate, like Caesar, like this kind of king. You rule the armies, you've got the, the storehouse with all the gold and silver in it. Jesus was trying to redefine what king was before he said he was one. When people think of Jesus' kingdom, they might get the wrong idea. And so that's why this conversation is a bit awkward. Pilate asks Jesus if he's king, and Jesus responds by saying, what you think of as king isn't what I think of when I say king. So yes, I'm a king, but not that kind of king. Yes, I have a kingdom, but not that kind of kingdom. If I was trying to be ruler of that worldly kingdom, if I was trying to take over the temple, if I was trying to take over the city... If I was trying to lead an army to rule a country, there would have been a fight. If that was the kind of king I was, my followers would have been part of a violent conflict. If Jesus was that kind of king, it would be a direct threat to Pilate and the Romans. They would, they would be worried about a rebellion that interrupted trade, that would mess up you know, the, the marketplaces and the economies and the taxes and all of that. But Jesus says the kingdom that he rules is not a worldly kingdom. It's not one that's interested in worldly power and might. But rather, as Jesus said, my kingdom is one that is interested in truth. See the distinction he's trying to make? So Pilate says, are you a king? And he's like, yeah, I'm a king, but not the way that you think of. Do you have a kingdom? I I do have a kingdom, but it's not that kind of kingdom. (laughs) You're talking power, I'm talking truth. And when Jesus says truth here, he doesn't mean facts. He's not saying, um, you know, my kingdom will help you win Jeopardy. My kingdom isn't the encyclopedia or Wikipedia. It's not that kind of truth. That he, it's not facts. He's talking about truth in a different way. He means truth as in the proper reality of things. When Jesus says truth, he means how things are when they aren't corrupted, when they aren't destroyed, when they aren't hidden, when things are perfectly revealed the way that they're supposed to be, when there's no falseness to them. Truth, as Jesus defines it, is how God desires things to be. And so Jesus is not here as king to conquer the world, at least not in the worldly sense. He came to reveal the true world. He came to uh, usher in things so that the world on earth should be as it is in heaven. To reveal that truth of who God is and what kind of kingdom God leads. Worldly kingdoms fight for power, they fight for wealth, status. But Jesus lived and died to reveal the true nature of God. He wasn't fighting for a place and a throne of power in worldly kingdoms, but he came to reveal God's nature, God's reign, his rule, his character. So the story isn't 
isn't just a moment to declare that Jesus is king. Well, this is important, right? Jesus is king, Jesus is Lord. That's the confession of the church and has been for 2,000 years. But it's also a moment for Jesus to define what a true king is. When we say Jesus is king or Jesus is Lord, let's not get it twisted or assume that we know what king means without letting Jesus define what kind of king he is. So, for example, worldly kings expect and demand that their people die to protect them. Right? Come join my army so you can go fight my fights and protect my kingdom. Worldly kings expect and people expect and demand that their people die to protect them and their kingdom. But for Jesus, the king is willing to die for his people. For Jesus, a king extended grace and forgiveness freely. Worldly kings fought, demanded, expected to get everything they felt they were entitled to. For Jesus, the king was a servant who cared for the needs of even the most shunned and shamed member of that kingdom. Right? For, for Jesus, the king was a servant who cared for the people that lived in his kingdom. Worldly kings would exploit, sometimes ignore the powerless in order to increase their own wealth, their own power. For Jesus, a king was a healer who cared for the sick, who cared for the suffering, who brought peace and comfort to those in need. Worldly kings saw the sick and suffering as having no value. They couldn't fight in the armies. They couldn't work in the fields. They couldn't build the buildings. They were a liability. They were a nuisance. Worldly kings saw the sick and suffering as having no value because they couldn't contribute to the kingdom. But Jesus was the kind of a king who was a healer. For King Jesus, a king was a friend of sinners. You see, in, in worldly kingdoms, if, if, if your citizens or the people that lived in your kingdom broke the law, didn't follow the rules, didn't follow the teachings, they were punished, they were uh, imprisoned and, and, and held account to their, their behaviors and their activities. Worldly kings punished those who broke the law or went against the king's will and wishes. But Jesus says the king is one who forgives and is a friend with sinners. For Jesus, a king was a shepherd who gathered the flock, protected the flock, and cared for the flock. Worldly kings, on the other hand, devoured the flocks, abused the flocks. They built their kingdoms on the back of these flocks. And so the conversation between Jesus and Pilate was Jesus working through the misunderstandings about what kind of king and what kind of kingdom God was sending to the people. He says, you say I am a king, but not that kind of king. You say I lead a kingdom, but it's not that kind of a kingdom. Jesus rejected and condemned worldly kings and worldly kingdoms. They were interested in power, not truth. They were interested in defeating, conquering, exploiting God's creation, not caring for, protecting, defending it. And so while understanding and celebrating Jesus as king is absolutely important, it's the core of the gospel, preaching Jesus as Lord. It's also critical today that we understand that Jesus defines for us what that means. He defined the role of king through a bunch of other roles 
that he served in. Jesus was a healer. Jesus was a servant. Jesus was a shepherd. He was a friend. And all of that defines for him what a king should look like, what kind of king Jesus is. So it's important that we let Jesus define who, what kind of king he is, what kind of kingdom he rules. Because the church can make an error. We can make a terrible mistake if we don't let Jesus define for us what kind of king he is. And when I say terrible, I mean it has the potential to distract us from his teachings and commands that he gave us. When I say it could be a terrible mistake, I mean it can lead us to change the very nature of the gospel message. It can cause us to redefine what salvation is. It can cause us to ignore sanctification and calls for holiness. So when I say this, we're, as a church, are, are tempted to make a grave error if we don't let him define for us what kind of king it is. I, I mean, it could be a terrible error. And that error, that mistake, is this. If we understand that Jesus isn't a worldly king trying to conquer worldly kingdoms, we can mistakenly come to the conclusion that Jesus doesn't care about things of this world. Right? And, and, and people don't come out and say that directly, oh, Jesus doesn't care about the world. But it shows up in other ways. Because Jesus doesn't care about pursuing worldly power or worldly wealth, we think Jesus only cares about spiritual things. As if the only thing in the world is power and wealth. And if he's not after those, he doesn't care what's going on there. So we start talking about Jesus as Savior a lot. <laughs> he's king of the spiritual things. He's king of the spiritual world, spiritual stuff. But we might start neglecting any discussion of Jesus as king right here and right now. And if, if unchecked, then we can end up with a view of God that says, God doesn't care about this world. There's streams of thought in, in the Christian culture at large that God isn't bringing healing and redemption to the world. His ultimate plan is to, to set the whole thing on fire <laughs> and burn it to the ground instead of re restoring and redeeming it. That we as Christians shouldn't be concerned about what goes on in the world because we're just a quick trip away from being out of here. We start talking about Jesus saving spiritual things, but that the physical things, the things of this world, God's creation doesn't matter, and this is a grave error. When we say that Jesus is Lord, we mean that he's Lord of spiritual things, and that's not what Jesus is saying. When Jesus tells Pilate that he's not here to raise an army or fight for worldly power, He's not saying that he doesn't care about the world or the condition of the people who live in it. But as I said a moment ago, the, the answer to that problem, the way to avoid that grave error is to let Jesus define what kind of king he is. And he defines what kind of king he is by the way he lived and the commands he gave his followers. And so the conflict between the kingdoms of this world and the kingdom of God is not a clash between physical kingdoms and spiritual kingdoms. I've heard that set up before. That's the kind of, you know, there's Pilate and Jesus represent, this conversation represents a clash of kingdoms, right? But it's not one of physical and spiritual. It's not one saying, well, we've got to have everything in the world versus everything's spirit. It's not that. It's not a clash between physical and spiritual things. It's a clash between false kingdoms and the true kingdom. It's a clash between corrupted kingdoms and a holy kingdom. It's, it's a conflict or a clash between kingdoms built on sinful nature of fallen creation and a kingdom built on the character and the righteousness of a holy God. 
It's a clash between the fruits of sin and the fruits of the Spirit. It's a clash between kings that, that don't care what God intends for the world. They have no desire to fall under the authority of God's teaching. And the king who rules his kingdom exactly how God intended. But that's the conflict here. It's not physical versus spiritual. It's, it's false kingdoms versus true kingdom. It's a corrupted world in creation versus the way that God wants things to be. That's what's in conflict here. And Jesus shows up as king, right? For generations, Israel had been hoping for not to get out of Israel, not to escape the promised land, not to leave behind their homes, but rather that a king would lead them in righteousness and proper worship, would teach them how to live day in, day out as a community of people, live the way that God wanted them to live, to lead them in ways that were filled with the peace and presence of God. So to be Christian not only means that you have your sins forgiven and that you go to heaven when you die, it means that you follow Jesus' commands and teachings as your king. To mean... To follow Jesus means that you let him be your teacher about how to live, how to live in this life as well as in the next life. It means pledging your allegiance to this king, Jesus, who is a servant, who is a healer, a friend to sinners, a shepherd who cares for others. It means if you're a citizen of his kingdom, you live according to the teachings and the values of the king. It means you commit to do the things he said to do, If you're a citizen of the kingdom of God and someone wrongs you, the king says, my law, my rule, my teaching is for you to forgive them. That's what we do in the kingdom of God. If you are a citizen of the kingdom of God and someone becomes an enemy, the king says, love them. That's what we do in the kingdom of God. If you're a citizen of the kingdom and someone is mourning, they've experienced loss, King Jesus says, grieve with them. If you're a citizen of the kingdom and someone is hungry, the king says, feed them. I've lost the microphone again. Just a great day all the way around. Um, If someone has no coat, give them one of yours. This is what the king says. This isn't an advice column. (laughs) This is the the teachings of the king. If somebody doesn't have one, give them one. If someone is suffering, comfort them. If you're a citizen of the kingdom, if you're an obedient, faithful follower of this king, follow his example and serve others. Jesus says, if you're my follower, then pick up your cross and follow me. Lay down your life for others. If you're a citizen in this kingdom, follow his example and put others' needs first. Jesus, as king, instructs us in worship He instructs us in in community, in fellowship with each other, and in fellowship with, with God the Father. He invites us to serve God and to serve others. He invites us to pray. He commands us to be to be generous. He he commands us to invite others to join us in our journey of faith, right? Like the greatest command that he gives is. If you're a disciple, if you're a citizen in this kingdom, is to go and help make other followers, other disciples, other citizens in the kingdom. I said all this today to say one thing. And this is 
comes from the heart of a pastor. And a lot of this has maybe been informational or just kind of theoretical, but this is, this is the thing that, that weighs on me as a pastor these days. If we're not deliberate about our decision to follow King Jesus, we'll end up following all kinds of other kings. If we don't choose to be a citizen in the kingdom of God, we will end up being citizens of whatever kingdoms we find ourselves in. If we aren't deliberate about our decision to follow King Jesus, then the voices that speak to our fears, our anxieties, our ambitions, our goals, our comfort, will be the voices we follow rather than King Jesus. And so the, the invitation today is, is to be deliberate, to make a commitment to follow King Jesus, to live as a citizen in his kingdom, to listen to his voice. Being a Christian doesn't just mean being on the side that wins. It means living according to the teachings of the king. I had uh, thrown out the invitation the past few weeks that if anybody would want to be baptized today, that would be available to you. And the reason I wanted to offer up baptism on Christ the King Sunday, because baptism is a commitment to follow the king. That's what it is. It's an announcement. I've committed my life to following this king. Baptism is a commitment to not only be a Christian, but to be Christian, to live like Jesus. It's a way to confess our allegiances to, to other kingdoms. Ah, I've, served, I've been serving the wrong kingdoms, God, and I confess my allegiance to the wrong kingdom, and I deny it, and I repent of it, and I turn away, and I'm, I'm uh, announcing my allegiance to God's kingdom. Never to turn away again. That's basically the, the liturgy of the baptism. I've been following the wrong king. I've been living as a citizen of the wrong kingdom, and I'm going to stop doing that. That's the announcement of baptism. So regardless of where you are in your journey of faith today, Christ the King Sunday is a great day to take inventory, to assess, to evaluate where your commitments lie, to where your priorities fall, to what king you are following and what kind of king you think Jesus is. Christ the King Sunday is a great day to ask yourself what kind of kingdom you think the kingdom of God is. Jesus stands before Pilate and says, I'm king, but not the way that you think of it. I lead a kingdom, but not the kind of kingdom you think of. And by default, we end up thinking king and kingdom the way that Pilate did. Right? We think of rulers on thrones. We think of palaces, armies, wars. Right? Jesus says, you can use the word king, but be careful. <laughs> it's not that kind of king. And you can use the word kingdom, but be careful. It's not that kind of kingdom. Um, in a moment, uh, I'm going to, to pray um, the worship team will be invited to come and, and lead us in a song. I'm not even going <laughs> to, maybe two, I don't know, whatever. We got all kinds of stuff. I, I don't know what I'm doing today. Um, and then I had asked when I was putting things together this week, I'd asked Tabitha if she would come and, and read a, a prayer and then speak our benediction today. Um, so that's how we'll conclude our service. Um, and then uh, invite you to transition over to the uh, Fellowship Hall for, for the dinner. But let me pray as the worship team comes.